This is the sound that the people of Waikato can now hear at night. It's the first time the Kākāpō's call can be heard on the mainland of New Zealand in nearly 40 years, with the arrival of four males at Sanctuary Mountain, Maunga Tautari, near Cambridge, two weeks ago. It's a small step for one Kākāpō, but a big leap for conservation. But is it? I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, will the mainland move get the kākāpō off the critically endangered list? And what about the rest of our native birds under threat? There's hundreds of other bird species out there that are not doing so well, and we can't jam them all into Maungatautari to keep them safe. We say we're all about our wildlife. It's all over our tea towels and our T-shirts and our art and all of that stuff. But... We don't put our money where our mouth is. More from two of our top conservationists soon, but let's go back to the day of their arrival at Maunga Tauteri from Whenua Ho, a thousand kilometres away. This was years in the making, including building a kākāpō-proof fence. Dr Janelle Ward is the biodiversity team leader. Yeah, there was a, a couple of things that we had to work on prior to the birds coming. And the, the biggest one of those was around making sure that the sanctuary uh, could keep the birds in. They're very good climbers. And this fence barrier, basically we had to fundraise and uh, find over $800,000. I think it ended up costing close to 900000 in the end. There were 12 initially rangers employed to install the fence and then lots of volunteers helping to roll tin and cut up the pieces ready to uh, retrofit the existing fence that we've got all around the mountain. Gosh, that's a lot of money and a lot of effort. So what what does it (laughs) look like? What makes it so special? You know how you see those wraps around the trees that stop possums from climbing a tree? If you imagine a similar kind of sized wrap, but all the way on the inside of the fence, all the way around the mountain pretty much. So it's basically just a piece of of tin attached inside the fence barrier. And how are they settling in? We think pretty well. So for the first three to four months, we've actually got an experienced Doc Kākāpō ranger with us, which is brilliant. Um, They've each got a backpack transmitter on their back, the the birds, not Mm. the rangers. (laughs) (laughs) And each bird has its own unique signal. So we're able to use radio tracking technology to to monitor where they are. A couple of them have moved up higher on the mountain and uh, one's kind of gone west and one went a bit east. Mm. (laughs) And um, yeah, they're definitely moving each night now. So probably the first couple of days they didn't move so much. They must have been kind of, you know, getting over the shock of the big journey. and With 1,000 Ks they came. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite incredible what has gone into this move. Kākāpō are a treasure or taonga for Māori. These ones were under the care of Naitahu in the south. They now come into the protection of northern iwi. It's a great milestone for the for DOC's Kākāpō recovery programme as well. But for us as the you know, Sanctuary Mountain Maungatauteri, this bird has been you know, on the minds of the, the visionaries that first wanted to put a fence right around the mountain. They, they seem, from records right back as 2004, kākāpō have been included as one of those species that would hopefully thrive at Maungatauteri. They're at a really tricky point because they've actually been very successful at making kākāpō. 
Conservationist and journalist Alison Balance has been following the kākāpō for years. If you cast your mind back to the 1990s, there were 51 kākāpō left. After the 2022 breeding season, we had a high of 252 kākāpō. And they, they're just running out of places to put them. So the Department of Conservation has them on Whenua Hau, Codfish Island near Rakiura. They have them on Pukanui, Anchor Island in Fiordland, and also on Chalky Island. Those are the main breeding islands. And those islands are full. And so the challenge that the Kākāpō Recovery Programme faces at the moment is the population will keep growing and where can they meaningfully put those birds so that you can have more breeding populations? And quite frankly, they just run out of predator-free islands. So looking around mainland New Zealand for a suitable place for them, there wouldn't be that many, would there? You know, places that are safe for them? Uh, there's almost nowhere that's safe for them. Maunga Tautari is a fenced sanctuary. And the four young males that they've moved there at the moment are basically surplus to requirements. So their genes are already widely represented in the population. They don't need them for breeding in the near future. So they're a bit of a trial. Will the birds go well on Maunga Tauteri? And there's no reason to believe they won't. But then it's a massive step between having birds that just survive somewhere versus birds that are able to breed somewhere. It'll be years before we know whether we have kākāpō breeding back on the mainland again. But outside of places like Maunga Tauteri, there's very few places to put them. Rakiora, Stewart Island would be a great place. It's got problems with predators. It doesn't have stoats, but it's got rats and it's got a biggie, feral cats. So finding somewhere safe, not only are there not enough islands, but there's very few places that on the mainland that are big enough. Wainui Omata near Wellington is another place where there is early discussions about could you put a predator-proof fence around a large amount of water catchment forest there? Would that be a suitable place for kākāpō? So basically, this this is an experiment and really for them to thrive on our mainland freely, we need to deal to the pests. We absolutely need to deal to the pests and that goes for a whole lot of species, actually. In fact, just about everything that I can think of that breeds on the mainland, there's a lot of predator control being done by the Department of Conservation, by community trapping groups. DOC does big 1080 drops when there are massed seeding years, these mass seeding years when predator numbers explode. Um, but predator-free 2050, if we could pull that off, even if not by 2050, but sometime soon after that, that would be a game changer for our native birds. If you pull back and look at bird conservation in general, kākāpō are doing really well and they're a flagship for our threatened species. But there's hundreds of other bird species out there that are not doing so well and we can't jam them all into Tauteri to keep them safe. Uh, so there's a lot of issues that we still need to deal with. So I would say it's a small step for conservation and a small step for kākāpō. This isn't going to get kākāpō off the critically endangered list. No, but they're getting close to the point where they don't need to do the levels of intense management that they've done in the past. There are other species in New Zealand, for instance, like the takahe, which has also had a long conservation program with lots of ups and downs. It's been a real roller coaster. They're at the point this year where their population will probably tick over 500. They're in the same boat. Where do we put all these birds that we're making? We've got takahe scattered on offshore islands. We've got a main population in Fiordland. We've got a breeding facility where about 20 plus pairs of takahe make lots of takahe babies. 
and we need predator-free places for them. Maunga Tauteri won't work. They've got a couple of pairs of takahe there, but basically they live on the grass around the edge. So they need a different kind of place. And that's different, again, from our the birds that live on our braided rivers, the seabirds that live on our islands. We're actually, we've got 100 predator-free islands, so there's actually lots of safe breeding places for seabirds, but when they fly out of our territorial waters, they're at risk of being caught by fishing fleets around the world. So there's lots of different problems that things faces. Predator-free connects a whole lot of our land birds, but it's not the big issue for our seabirds, for instance. And just back to the kākāpō, why is it doing so well compared with others? We know it's the poster child for New Zealand native birds. It ought to be impossible to describe a creature as looking old-fashioned, but that's exactly how Sirocco looks with his big sideburns and his Victorian gentleman's face. Is that why? It's the charisma of it. Well, it got worldwide fame with Sirocco. It's getting a bit frisky. Ow! Ow! Do you think it is a, um, he's actually attempting a sort of mating ritual? Yeah. He is. <laughs> oh, Ross. <laughs> you are sure, shocked. Sure. Or not. Ow. Go on, Look, he's so happy. <laughs> Sorry. Ow. One of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> you are being shagged by a rare parrot. Is that why it's done so well and others that are kind of the shrinking violets haven't done so well? Akapo has been really well resourced as a conservation program because it is such a unique kind of bird. We don't have the resources to throw at every species that needs help. So lots of birds are just flying under the radar. And there are there are bird species that have done well, uh, which are now a bit stuck. And again, it comes back to that predator-free thing. So if you can throw the resources at a program, you can probably achieve miracles, which is essentially what the Kākāpō Recovery Programme has done. It's what they've done is downright miraculous. Same with the Takahe. But there are lots of other species that are just not getting that same level of love and attention. Think about Kākāpō as being as common as sparrows. Forest and Birds Chief Executive Nicola Torkey reckons most New Zealanders don't quite get just how much we've lost. Just imagine what uh, early explorer Charlie Douglas described as being able to uh, shake a tree and have five or six kakapo fall down like apples. By the time we got to 1995, uh, there were only 51 left. And we've done that. We've done that in just over 100 years. So bringing those kakapo to Maungatau tree is significant in the extreme and a, and a shining light of hope of where we might be able to go. My handbrake on that is, you know, they're back on the mainland, but they're on an island in the mainland, aren't they? Because they're behind a predator-proof fence. Yeah. So what would it take uh, to have them walking around in our backyard? Uh, what it will take is a, is the um, crazy and ambitious goal of a predator-free New Zealand. They cannot exist where there are invasive mammalian predators such as rats. It is a big responsibility here in New Zealand to have these incredible species that have evolved in isolation for millions of years. And so we've got to think hard about how we adapt to make sure they can thrive. 
why aren't you now part of the Kākāpō recovery programme? Is it because so many resources go into that and there are other uh, birds that need, you know, that need attention, really? Well, birds, invertebrates, plants um, and communities that are working with these things. I mean, um, no, it wasn't that we decided we didn't like Kākāpō anymore, but if you think about um, the fact that Kākāpō are a a Taonga species uh, for Ngaitahu and listed so under Ngaitahu's settlement legislation and the work that the Department of Conservation has done so incredibly for so many years. You know, Forest and Bird's greatest achievement is when we can let go and and, ha- and be happy um, that we've got enough other people in the room who who can get on and do it. So as you say, we can turn our attention to maybe some of the little things. What about some of those others on the critical list? There are many of them. Why don't they get the same amount of attention? Occasionally people will say, oh, yeah, but, you know, people just aren't interested uh, in, in our wildlife because it's all kind of brown and dull and boring. What I think it is instead is this. We have dropped the ball in New Zealand and we've dropped the ball because we say we're all about our wildlife. That's all over our tea towels and our T-shirts and our art and all of that stuff. But we don't put our money where our mouth is. So, so we can't be both the country that trades on our image of beautiful wildlife and wild places uh, and then just chucking at a few peanuts and a you know 10 cent coin we found down the side of the couch while we're losing biodiversity left, right and centre. And, you know, if I give you an example, birds and docks, um, species-specific funding uh, have 29 million allocated to species protection, mm. and New Zealand is the land of birds. And our birds here, and your high levels of endemism here in New Zealand, so usually somewhere around the 80 to 90 percent, depending on what kind of animal, uh, are only found here and nowhere else. Uh, 29 million is about what Inland Revenue um, Department wanted to spend to do up its offices in Wellington the other day. You know, I sound grumpy, and um, and I probably am a little bit because as we are hurtling towards a general election, and we are seeing all around us um, the the impacts of biodiversity loss and the impacts of climate change, not one political leader has mentioned either of those things in any kind of meaningful way, and I just think it's kind of disgraceful and irresponsible. Which bird are you most worried about at the moment? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like asking you what your favourite child is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it depends entirely on the situation, right? So I could tell you, for example, that one of the world's largest albatross um, that breeds here in New Zealand waters, the Antipodean albatross, will be extinct by 2050 uh, under their current trajectory, and that is almost entirely due to fisheries bycatch. So we're sending boats out and they catch them and they die. These are long-lived animals, right? Like an albatross can live for 80 or more years, uh, and if those animals are breeders and they're taken out of the system, the impact on that population is enormous. I could also tell you that um, down on, on Rakiora, the southern dotteral, there's only 100 or so of those left. And not only are they getting smashed over by the feral cats that are roaming around uh, Stewart Island, but deer 
on the island, which are out of control, are eating their eggs. Mm. So, it, you know, it it genuinely um, depends on the situation. But I would say as a whole to tile, you know, nature in New Zealand is sitting on pretty wobbly foundations. And I think we have a very important window uh, as the reason that I I put my hat in the ring for this job, for this for this role at Forest and Bird. It was all about timing. You know, it's a very important time for us to um, live up to who we say we are. Okay, well, let's take the albatross that you're talking about and the dotterel. Why can't the same thing be done for them that has been done for the kākāpō? Very different stories, but if you think about an albatross, so uh, the albatross colony in Dunedin, for example, uh, when the chick, uh, and some of you might be watching the chick at the moment on Royal Cam, in a couple of months, when that chick takes to the air for the first time, if it doesn't crash down the hill, which they do occasionally, then they get brought back to the top. <laughs> but when it lifts its wings and gets picked up by the wind and leaves his, his or her colony for the first time, it won't touch land for four years. Won't touch land. They will circle the Southern Oceans, follow the currents. First and foremost, we're not being tidy in our own waters with respect to the impacts that could affect it. And those include um, climate change, moving um, food sources around, right? Or killing fish that the albatross might otherwise eat. And then if an albatross has to travel for a thousand kilometres over a very short period of time and it doesn't have enough food in its tummy, it's going to die. So um, we can't take an albatross and put it on an offshore island and take all the pests off and say, you'll be okay now, because the, the threats to the albatross are systemic and they relate to our uh, both national and global systems of uh, how we gather our food. Um, and the situation with the dotterel is the same. It's on an island. It's being plagued by both predators and it's having both its habitat and in this case its eggs um, destroyed uh, by deer. And we're not talking about that. I find it incredible. So I've been doing lots of thinking about our history since we're turning 100. And, uh, you know, our founder, my original predecessor, Captain Val Sanderson, you know, he spent 20 years uh, moving government, influencing governments and pushing them along and showing them the impact of deer and the, the reason that deer contributed to erosion, which contributed to floods, uh, which came true in 1938 in the Esk Valley, which, surprise, surprise, has happened again. You know, we're just, we're, we are back there again with deer and ungulates in the forest, but we're too chicken to actually pony up and deal with it. Um, and now is the time for courage. So is it all about money? Throw the same amount at other birds as the millions put into saving the kākāpō and takahe. Here's Alison Balance again. Well, not all species need that same amount of hands-on um, concentrated effort that have been made for those two in terms of things like hand-rearing, for instance. Um, lots of species would benefit just from a bigger generic effort in predator control. For example, the Rakiora Stewart Island community would like to make Rakiora predator-free. If they can achieve that, then we suddenly have 
the ways and means of making other places, including mainland New Zealand, predator-free. And so I think it's you don't need to individually manage every species, but you need to go, what are the big picture things that will give us some big wins? And predator-free is definitely one of those. But we keep hearing that Doc hasn't got much money and the predator-free efforts are, are not as well-funded as they should be? Well, you know, how long is a piece of string? You could throw indefinite amounts of money at it. So I think what's... The, the predator-free 2050 goal that was set a few years ago was a very ambitious goal. We may or may not get there, but it's certainly achieved a lot in the last few years. Some very smart people have made some very big gains. They've made predator control much more efficient Word has just got out in general, really. There are lots of community groups now involved in trapping and looking after conservation areas in their own backyard. And it doesn't need to be unlimited money, but there's going to be one or two pots of money, for instance, Rakiora Stewart Island, or trying to get rid of mice and cats and pigs off the main Auckland Island. Those are a couple of particularly big island challenges that if we can get those over the start line, then I think we will be in a much better place to then stand back and look at all of New Zealand and go, what can we do in a way that will now benefit a whole suite of species so that we don't have to individually manage those species. We don't have to put a whole lot of effort on just predator trapping in this area here or doing Operation Nest Egg for Kiwi, for instance, where they take eggs away from the wild they incubate and raise the chicks safely until they're stoked proof and when they're about six months old before they put them back because they know that just leaving them in the in the wild, 90, 95% of them are going to die. If we can avoid having to do that level of effort, then we can prioritise what's a better use of our conservation spend than doing this intensive conservation effort for something like kākāpō. And Alison, how far away... Is Rakiura Stewart Island from being predator-free? Yes. I mean, how do you get rid of feral cats off a, an island the size of Rakiura? But we, we need to start thinking about it, and we need to start thinking about it practically, and we need to start putting some deadlines on it. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Mark Jennings, Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Janelle Ward, Nicola Torkey and Alison Balance. Mā te wā.